Well, I thought that the, thought the worship was fairly average and kind of downbeat today. I don't know about you. I felt, <laughs> think they maybe need to put a bit more effort in next time. What do you think? Yeah. They keep, pra- they, they keep practicing, they'll get good, I think, probably. That was fantastic. Thank you, Lord. Well, uh, today we're going to continue this little um, excursus on the Holy Spirit because here in the story that we're joined with in the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit really is the principal character. And one of the things that we have to do, both as believers and as teachers, is to be faithful to the text. And so, as we look at this passage today, we're going to be looking at the reasons behind the extraordinary power that was seen in the life of Paul. And we're going to look at it not as an example of lightning that strikes that can't be predicted or expected in any other place, but as a model, as a pattern, as something that you and I can imitate and embrace. Last week, we looked at this this question, is there more? We looked at the question, is there more for us that we can know of God? Is there more for us that we can experience of God? Is there more that the Holy Spirit is able to do, is able to shape, is able to form, is able to to express in and through our lives? And of course, the answer to that is there's always more. And when we get to heaven, the answer will still be there's always more. Because the very fact that we're in relationship with the eternal God, the very fact that we're in relationship with the God who is, of course, larger, greater than even the apparently infinite expanse of the universe, indicates to us that however long we spend getting to know this God, there'll always be more. And however much power we receive, however much kindness we recognize, however much love is found in that relationship, there's always more. And so this adventure into eternity is one of there always being more. There was no suggestion in the text or hopefully in what I said that there are two levels of Christians. There are, there are not kind of ordinary Christians and then super Christians. There are Christians who live mediocre experiences as Christians, of course. But there is a radical equality in the gospel. All need Jesus equally. All need the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus equally. All of us, whoever we are, need equally the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. There are no divisions. There are no winners and losers. There's only children who are able 
to receive what the Father wants to give. So last week felt a little bit of a challenge. I hope that this week feels a little more of an invitation. And we'll see how the Lord does that as the passage unfolds. We're going to read from Acts chapter 19. And um, we're going to read quite a few of the verses in Acts chapter 19. I'm not actually exactly sure where we finish, but I'll finish at the right spot. So let's, um, let's read from Acts chapter 19 and verse 8. Paul is in Ephesus. He's begun the work there. There's been this kind of mini Pentecost with 12 disciples of Apollos who've been filled with the Spirit, speaking tongues and prophesy. And then in verse 8 it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the way of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So, of course, there's more for us. But does the more include the experience of Paul here? Paul here is the recipient, the conduit of something that is really quite amazing. It's the only place in the Bible where the word extraordinary is connected to the word miracle. Anyone who's experienced a miracle knows that a miracle is usually enough. And usually there are no superlatives that you attach to the word. Because miracle is superlative enough of a word. But here, the only place in the Bible, the word extraordinary is attached to the word miracle. It would appear as though the beginning of our journey in Luke's material is somehow being represented here towards the end. 
At the beginning of the journey, you'll remember, Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan by his cousin, John the Baptist. The sky is torn open, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and the voice of the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm very pleased. The Spirit captures Jesus and carries him, drives him, pushes him into the wilderness, just near at hand to where it is that he's being baptized. And there he's tested and tempted by the devil in his appetites and in his ambition and in his human need for approval. And as he overcomes each trial one by one, so Jesus puts to flight the great enemy of his soul and ours. And it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 14, that the same Jesus who went into the wilderness full of the Spirit now comes out of the wilderness full of the power of the Spirit. And he goes to his hometown and says, as his first words to his countrymen, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he articulates what it is that that preaching, that demonstration of the good news will look like as he reads from Isaiah 61. And we see this remarkable unfolding in the ministry of Jesus. There's a time, just a couple of chapters later, when Jesus is praying all night on the mountain and then comes down to his disciples, and then with his disciples goes into the crowd. And, and Luke says, power is coming from him and healing them all. On another occasion, Jesus is there in the crowd who are pressing to him. He's just got out of a boat. He's been to another location. He's arrived back towards the place where his, where his base is in the home of Peter and Andrew. The crowd are pressing around him. There's a man who wants him to heal his daughter who's on the point of death. And a woman on her knees crawls through the crowd and just touches the edge of his clothing. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Peter says, everyone's crushing in on you. He said, no, someone touched me because I felt Power go from me. Jesus wasn't in control of the power. The power was present within him and was activated by a mustard seed of faith. And here, at the end of the story, we've seen the twists and turns. We've seen the high points and the low points. We've seen now the exponent of the mission of Jesus, Paul, go on his first missionary journey and then return home. And then his second missionary journey and on his way home, go up to greet the church, which means that he went to Jerusalem. And as I suggested to you, at the end of the second missionary journey, when he makes his Nazarite vow... But he's doing that because he wants to ask God to deal with the fundamental opposition in his life. Remove from me the thorn 
in my flesh. And he asks the Lord three times. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, is completed in your weakness. Paul goes from Jerusalem to Antioch, rests a while, and then begins his third missionary journey, goes through the center of modern-day Turkey to Ephesus, prays with the people that we looked at last week, the, the disciples of Apollos, and then enters the synagogue. He preaches there, teaches there until the people become resistant and then opens a theater, a lecture hall in the middle of Ephesus, more than likely during the siesta hours because we know from in the next chapter when he's talking to the leaders in Ephesus that that Paul is working daily as a tent maker. No longer is he going from place to place. He's located in one place. So it's quite different from his first missionary journey. No longer is he looking for a gift that will release him from his work so that he can preach every day. No, he's staying at the bench of the tent maker. And during the siesta hours, he is teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And we hear that, that the whole region around Ephesus called Asia, it's a complicated thing that it would be called Asia because, of course, that's a continent as well. But this little region called Asia comes under the sound of the good news and all the Jews and Gentiles hear the good news. Well, either they all came to the hall of Tyrannus, which is very unlikely, or the people that he's training go out. And of course, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, we get a little vignette, we get a little insight, a little window. He says he sent Epaphras to them, to the city of Colossae, one of the cities in the region of Asia. And he planted the church on Paul's behalf. So what we see then is Paul working daily in the morning hours right up to midday and then during the siesta hours from midday to four o'clock teaching the disciples who'll listen. And then as they're equipped, they're sent out and they plant the churches in this area. The, the seven churches in Revelation are all in this area. The church of Hierapolis, the church of Colossae, at least nine churches, it would appear, are planted during this two-year period. And Paul never leaves Ephesus. And then he goes back to his workman's bench again. And he gets out the apron and he begins to stitch the cloth. And he uses the needles and the awls to connect the leather to the cloth. And it's hot. It's tiring. And the sweat that falls from his brow is gathered in the handkerchiefs that he ties around his head. And when people say, Paul, will you come and pray for my friend, my, my family member. He can't because he's got to fulfill the job that he has there in front of him. His restricted circumstances mean that he can't do the things that he used to do. But something's happened to Paul. He's embraced these circumstances. He, he's not bridling against them. He's not looking for a way out of them. And he gives them the sweatband or the apron and says, take this. 
just so they know that I'm praying. And the spirits leave them. And the sicknesses are healed. At the beginning of the story, we have Jesus standing under the open heaven that was torn apart as the Spirit descended upon him. And we know that as the Spirit descended upon him, the Spirit remained on him without measure, according to the testimony of John the Baptist. Remained on him without measure. There was always an open heaven above Jesus. And now, here in the life of Paul, it appears as though there is an open heaven above him. He doesn't even have to be present at the failed attempt to remove the demon from the man who beats up the seven pastors, strips them naked, and drives them bleeding through the streets of Ephesus. He doesn't have to be present when they take his handkerchiefs and his aprons because the open heaven above Paul is extending the mercy of God to all those who want it. Something has happened to Paul. Yes, he's seen amazing things. His testimony is that it's not with persuasive words or clever arguments, but with the Spirit's power that the churches are planted, but he's never seen anything like this. And Luke, the one who is recording all of the story, of course, is saying the same thing. Never before has he seen miracles of these kind. What has happened? Well, what's happened is that Paul has understood that the way to power is through weakness. Three times I asked the Lord, he says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, three times I asked the Lord to remove the thorn in my flesh. Thorns in our flesh, like I said last week, are always people in the Bible. They're the people who are pursuing him and harrying him. The people who are disturbing and destroying his work of church planting. They're the people who throw insults in his direction because their worldview, like the worldview of everyone that anyone would meet at this time, their worldview is this. If you're a victim of terrible things, it's your fault. The worldview at the time was very clear. It's a worldview shared today by Islam and various other religions around the world, many Eastern religions that, that describe the conditions of this current life on the basis either of God's will in this current life or because of behavior done in previous lives. And so the things that are happening to us now are our fault, one way or another. You see, the idea of the victim being the hero is an entirely Christian idea. It's a Christian idea that's being shared and spread abroad throughout the world. It first emerged in the 
in the Psalms as, as David is wrestling with what it is that's happening to him and wondering why. Because his worldview, like the worldview of everyone else, is, well, it must be because of something you've done, and yet he can't find anything that he's done. On some occasions he can, but, but, but on others he can't, and so he's, he's wrestling with these things. And so this idea that perhaps things are happening to me that are not directly connected to my sin, but somehow are connected to the way the world is. It begins to emerge there in the Psalms and, and maybe is reflected and echoed in the occasional reflection in the great prophets. But of course, when we see the perfect Lamb of God slain for the sins of the whole world, the victim is the hero. Paul has been beaten with the 39 lashes five times. He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been shipwrecked twice. He's been stoned. He's been harried and harassed in every kind of place and by every kind of person. And one of the reasons why they would do that is they would see his body just, just a network of scars. And their assumption would be, here's a wicked man. And when the Pharisees, from whom he came, who had nurtured his spiritual life as a young man, pointed at Paul, they would say, see, look at all that he suffered. And like the friends of Job, they would say, and it's his fault. And so Paul has to deal with insults. He has to do with hardships. He has to do with the shame of wrestling to the ground all of the voices of the past that tell him, this is your fault. And so he comes to the Lord and says, Lord, will you take this away, please? And the Lord says, no. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is teleos. That's the Greek word. Teleos in your weakness. Teleos indicates something that happens as a process that completes a goal that was planned at the beginning. Something that is a process that is completed at the end that was planned at the beginning. What's God's plan for Paul and for the rest of humanity? The plan is simply this, that he's created us to be his representatives, to be his partners, to be his collaborators, to be his co-workers. God's plan is that we, the crown of his creation would be the ones who represent him to the world. First, to a perfect world, now to a lost and broken world. But one way or another, he is committing himself to the plan of working through human beings 
And the way that he represents that par excellence is that he chooses to become a human being so as to demonstrate what it is that he is planning for us. What is the teleos? Well, the teleos is seen in Jesus. The plan, conceived at the beginning, completed at the end, is seen in the person of Jesus. And how does Jesus release the power of the risen life that God wants for each human being through the weakness of his flesh, the brokenness of his body, and his blood poured out? And how would he do it for us? Through the brokenness of our lives, through the struggle of our circumstances, through, through the shadow of our past, through the difficulties, the frailties that daily confront us. There's an art form that emerged in Japan when they took delivery of some Chinese porcelain, of course, considered throughout the world as the most beautiful and most precious, and it arrived broken. And so they sent it back to the makers, and they said, it needs fixing. And they sent the porcelain back with ugly staples holding the porcelain together. And it said that when the Japanese craftsmen saw that, they felt that there would be a better way. And so they mixed lacquer with gold powder and caused the pieces to adhere to one another and reformed the broken pottery so that it became more precious than when it was whole. I think we've got a little shot of one. Let's have a look. Isn't that stunning? Today, this art form, Kintsugi, is held in very great and high esteem by really anyone who knows anything about this, this form of art. Because of course, what we have here is something much more precious than what was conceived at the beginning. The things that hold the pieces together is, is actually more valuable than the pieces themselves. Isn't that amazing? This is the way it works, I believe. God says to Paul, and I think he says to you and me, I see the broken pieces. And I see the tears. And I see your attempt to hold together maybe two or three of those broken pieces so that you might create a container for goodness. But you can't hold 
enough pieces. And when you're tired, they fall from your grasp. And when you're overwhelmed by another set of circumstances, you find it impossible to hold on. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to complete my plan for you by holding them together and by making something more beautiful than what was there before. And even as you hear it, you can sense the witness of the Spirit saying, that's right. You know it's true. And so Paul goes through this experience of hearing this from the Lord, goes back to Antioch. I'm sure he's reflecting and thinking very hard about it, starts his third missionary journey, gets to Ephesus, discovers that there's no other means of support other than him being a tent maker to supply funds for him and his team. And so he surrenders and says, you know what? His grace is sufficient because his power is going to be made perfect in my weakened circumstances. And yes, he will hear from the people of the synagogue what a terrible man he must have been. And yes, he will bear the insults. And yes, no doubt, as we discover in coming weeks, he will suffer the hardship of persecution, but in the midst of his weakness, God's power will be completed, made perfect, brought together in him. And God will do extraordinary miracles. So, here's the thing. If, if God works through a failed deliverance in another place, you know, another community in Dayton, and the demon mentions your name, it's pretty hard for you to take credit for that, isn't it? Yeah? It's very hard to take credit for God saying, it's your weakness that I'll work through and not your holiness. How about that one? So here's the thing. So here's the thing. The main deception abroad in the church in relation to the power of the Spirit is that we think it's conditional on our holiness. The, the algorithm goes like this. Here's the Holy Spirit, and He's holy. Therefore, I need to be holy so that the Holy Spirit can work through me because obviously He's not going to work through an unholy thing. Yeah? So I need to strive and struggle and pray every day and read my Bible and fast three times a month and 
who knows what else? I mean, people have gone to all kinds of strictures and privations to become holy. And maybe occasionally something amazing happens. And so we say, see, it's the holy people. Or, or you believe the other narrative that's called the good news. Because frankly, that sounds like bad news to me. Because it sounds like legalism and religion, which I think Jesus died for. And I think killed him. Here's the other equation. God says, on the basis of what Jesus has done, I declare you holy. And you say, wait, what? Well, that's the deal. That's how it starts. My grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It's a gift to you. I declare you holy. And in that declaration, I demonstrate the truth of it, and I send the Holy Spirit to you right where you are, just as you are. And you go, what? Uh, <laughs> Which, when interpreted, is, what the heck? I declare you holy. I send the Holy Spirit to you. And if you will acknowledge your brokenness, and if you'll accept it, and if you will bring it to me and not choose to accommodate it, I'll use that as the crucible of power. Anybody believe in the good news now? Isn't that amazing? Flips the whole thing on its head, which is called good news. Now, that means that the principal thing that you offer to God in his demonstration of power is weakness and not holiness. Because you can't be holy unless God makes you holy by his decision, by his choice, and by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's not possible for you to be holy any other way. And so we offer him our weakness. And we hear the words spoken first to Paul echoing in our hearts. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, this connects broken, fallen sinners to a perfect, sinless Son of God. It connects us. And what's the connection? What's the connection between Jesus standing under the open heaven, 
Well, everybody would expect Jesus to stand under an open heaven. What connects him to the broken, fallen Pharisee, Paul, standing under an open heaven, fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus who said, because I go to the Father and you have faith in me, you'll do greater things than I do. What's the connection between the open heaven over Paul and the open heaven over Jesus? It's simply this. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He was completely dependent upon the Father. Paul says, I only have my weakness to offer. He was completely dependent upon the Father. And would be happy to say, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Thanks be to God. There's no condemnation. Doesn't this make your heart sing? Doesn't this change everything? Doesn't it make you want to think that maybe the power of God could work through you to touch the life of someone who needs the power to change their heart, to change their life, to heal their body, to set their spirit free. God could do it through you because his plan at the beginning was to look for partners, to look for co-workers, to look for collaborators. That's what he wants. That was the plan at his beginning. And the way that he's completing the plan, the way that he's doing the teleos of the plan is to complete it in your weakness. How about that? It's stunning. I hope you're getting this online today. Because it's really cool. And that's why you'll discover some days that people have started to believe a little more just because you've been around. And you'll begin to notice that some of the powers of darkness will be shaken, a little bit nervous when you turn up at the coffee shop. And you'll notice that for some reason, there's a kind of gravitational field around you. Because in our weakness, his power is doing the thing that only his power can do. So there is more. We can know him more. We can receive more. We can express more. We can embrace more but the more comes through a low path and not the high path of human striving not the high path of some super spirituality but through the low path of dependency found in weakness and if that's what you want that's what God wants 
So for those of you who've wrestled this week with circumstance, those of you who've wrestled this week with with personal frailty, for those of you who've wrestled this week with shadows from the past coming to impress themselves on your presence, those of you who've struggled with memories, those of you who've struggled with family, those of you who've struggled in your marriage, those of you who've struggled in your friendships, those of you who have known weakness this week, acknowledge it. Acknowledge it before Him and say, this is, Lord, the broken pieces. These are them. I can't hold them together. I accept that this is the way I am. I accept that this, this is the situation. This is the, this is the circumstance that I find myself in. And it's not that you are accommodating these things. You're simply accepting them and presenting them to God. And then he does the kintsugi. And the broken pieces forged together by his loving hand become far more precious than they were before.